or a uh, Bible app on your phone, you can turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We are continuing in our sermon series on the book of Revelation. Uh, We've been out of it for a few weeks. Uh, We uh, had the uh, joy of the five-year anniversary, and and then uh, this last Sunday, Kyle Dickerson was here preaching for us, uh, and uh, I was at the uh, Central Indiana Youth Retreat teaching uh, to all the youth in our presbytery, so it was a, it was a great time, but uh, glad to be back here with you guys this morning. Um, well, in uh, the 2019 uh, State of Our Unions report by the National Marriage Project, uh, which is a, a thing out of the University of Virginia, uh, this report was titled, I Fidelity, Interactive Technology and Relationship Faithfulness. It's really a survey of the attitudes of people of various ages and in various stages of life uh, towards fidelity and what constitutes infidelity in a relationship through online behavior specifically. Their conclusion was this. The bottom line is that the generations of men and women who have been most formed by the rise of the internet are most accepting of I-infidelities. Uh, most likely to engage in I infidelities, so those uh, through online activity, and most likely it would seem to pay a relational price in the real world for pushing emotional and sexual boundaries in the virtual world. By contrast, American men and women who steer clear of emotional and sexual entanglements in the real and virtual worlds, who practice fidelity and I fidelity, enjoy the most committed, most stable, and most happy relationships. There was a direct correlation between uh, any sort of uh, crossing of a boundary uh, over the internet and a decreased uh, happiness in that relationship or in relationships. There's a link between faithfulness and happiness in relationships. This This is true in relationships and something we kind of, it's kind of self-evident, right? We, we, you don't go to a wedding and listen to vows given to one another, which are like, hey, I hope, I hope we do a good job, right? Like, I hope I don't screw this up. Like, that's not how we do that, right? Because we're expecting fidelity because we know that there's a link between faithfulness and happiness. Now, this link is true for sure in relationships, but I also think it's true in our relationship with the Lord, that there's a link between faithfulness in our relationship with God and happiness in our relationship with God. And this is the question for the church in Thyatira that we're going to look at this morning. Remember, we're kind of in the middle of these letters to the churches in the beginning of Revelation in which Jesus, through John, is addressing the seven churches in Asia Minor. Remember, seven is a representative number of the universal church. So it's not just that Jesus is speaking to these individual churches in a real place in time, which is true. There's a real place in time. Thyatira is a real city. There was a real church there. And yet also, because it's, a, uh, it's written to these seven churches, it also applies to us. It's written to the universal church. And so we're kind of in the middle of this uh, spot in which we're looking at what is God's response to these churches. And if you remember... In each one of these letters, there's a, uh, a little portion of the vision that we saw of Jesus at the beginning of Revelation in which John sees Jesus, sees him in all his glory, 
And so he picks up on one piece of that vision and has that at the start of the letter. And then there's some sort of uh, uh, commending of the church for the good things that they are doing. He starts by saying, hey, this is going really well for you. And then comes a complaint. I have this complaint against you. This thing is not going well in the church. And then there's a challenge of some kind that Jesus is challenging them to do something or commit to something. And then a promise. He follows up with a promise at the end. And so we're kind of right here in, uh, I think we are in the, let's see, one, two, three, fourth. We're in the fourth out of seven. So we've got three more to go in this. Uh, and, and once we finish this little section of Revelation, uh, before moving on to the rest of it, we're going to take a small break for about a month and look at what it means uh, to be made in God's image, uh, what it means to be human. So we're going to take a tiny little break uh, and do a an, uh, short sermon series on uh, what it means to be human. It's a, really a huge question that hits kind of every uh, cultural, ethical issue. Uh, and so we want to take some time to say, hey, what does the Bible say about this stuff? Uh, and kind of build a framework for what does it mean for us to be made in God's image? So we'll, we'll uh, finish this section of Revelation, jump into that, and then we'll come back to the book of Revelation. We'll be in Revelation for a while. So. But, you know, you can only handle so much Revelation at one time. So we've got to take a little breaks. It'll be good. It'll be good. All right. So this morning, we're looking at Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. We're going to stop there for just a moment. But we see at the very beginning, right, the vision of Jesus that John is keying in on on this particular one that Jesus is communicating through John is that this message is from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like polished bronze. Now, this polished bronze, this is a sort of metaphorical image for moral purity. And eyes of fire is a consistent metaphorical picture in the scriptures of judgment. And so we should get a hint Already from the beginning, things might not be going well in Thyatira because Jesus is identifying as the one whose eyes are full of flames of fire and who has feet of moral purity, of polished bronze. So this is actually, uh, it ends up being a very similar thing to what Hunter was preaching a few weeks ago in uh, Pergamum. There are very similar problems, slightly different uh, angles taken to what Jesus addresses in Pergamum and in Thyatira. But he does begin with a very strong commendation. I see all the things you do. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love. Remember, Ephesus, their problem was that they didn't love. They had all sorts of faithfulness to God, but they had forgotten what it means to love him and to love neighbor. They have just continued to work things out and be faithful in service, but it doesn't matter about my heart's uh, disposition towards my neighbor or my enemy or even towards the Lord. And so he had challenged them to love. In Thyatira, they are still loving. It says, I have seen your faith and your service. They are trusting in the Lord. They are serving one another and their neighbor. 
and he has seen their patient endurance. Remember, a lot of what's happening in this area of the world is some persecution of the church. And the whole point of the book of Revelation is, hey, you are going to face challenges. And in those challenges that you face, you need to endure patiently and remain faithful to Jesus. Remember, Revelation is not about figuring out all of the details of the coming of Jesus, when it's going to happen, who the Antichrist is, and where this earthquake is going to happen, and all these other things. That's not the point. The point is, you must patiently endure whatever comes, trusting in Jesus and remaining faithful to him. And he says, I can see your constant improvement in all these things. You know, I think when we see a vision of Jesus where he comes with eyes, like, eyes with flames of fire in them, with judgment, we might expect that what Jesus is expecting of the church is perfection. But clearly that's not true. He says, I've seen your constant improvement. I know you aren't perfect. I know you're not going to be perfect in this life. I have seen your constant improvement. I have seen the way in which you have continued to improve in these very things. We set up this idea in ourselves that perfection is the only possible standard that we can reach. And when we don't reach it, you know what we end up doing? We actually end up running in the opposite direction because we we're filled with such incredible shame. It causes us to run the other direction. Rather than simply look at, hey, improvement. Am I improving in faith, in love, and in service, and patient endurance? Well, that's good. Sometimes I wish we could just stop at that point in the letter and be like, boom, look at that. Thyatira, good job, guys. But that's not where he stops. He continues on. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have this message for the rest of you in Thyatira, who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually, I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. Now remember, part of the metaphorical language of the book of Revelation is to shock you. And so as you hear these words, which sound very harsh coming from Jesus, part of the point is to say, uh-oh, what are we missing? Like, uh-oh, what are we missing here? And the complaint that Jesus has against Thyatira is their tolerance with a false teacher or some level of false teaching. Now, we don't know exactly the nature of this false teaching, but it seems similar to what Jesus identified in Pergamum, uh, the, the Nicolaitans and the party of Balaam, right? Because it mentions the same thing, sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols or idolatry. Now, we don't have a lot of details here, but it is something, some sort of false teaching that leads to spiritual adultery. 
Now, when he talks about uh, sexual immorality or uh, adultery with her, this false prophet, we believe that what he's speaking of is a metaphorical spiritual adultery or idolatry. Not physical, but spiritual. Certainly, that the false teaching could have some elements of sexual immorality as certain Old Testament uh, idolatrous practices did, uh, which certainly is the reference here. He's going to reference something in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But uh, also John's contemporary culture, idol worship in the first century included some practices of sexual immorality as a part of the worship of idols or of pagan gods. But he is linking here spiritual adultery with sexual immorality. He's linking these two things. He's using uh, sexual immorality or adultery as a picture of unfaithfulness to God. Now, this is not uncommon in the scriptures. This happens actually frequently throughout the book of Revelation and throughout the scriptures. This is a common thing. If you read the Old Testament, there are lots of prophets that speak of the spiritual adultery of God's people in the Old Testament by worshiping false gods, by worshiping idols, by coming after Baal one of the false gods, which is certainly in reference here because he references this woman Jezebel, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But why liken uh, spiritual adultery to idolatry? Aren't those two things very different, right? We're talking about adultery, this, this thing, and you're saying that's really about idolatry? Like, why liken those two things together? Well, certainly... The Old Testament speaks of the love of God for Israel, that he is like a husband to Israel, that he is her lover, that he loves Israel and has betrothed her to himself like a marriage relationship. And certainly we see that same idea picked up in the New Testament, right? Jesus and the church, the bride of Christ. The church is described as a bride adorned for her husband, Jesus. And I think what he's actually keying in on is the fact that there is a link between sexual desire and worship. Now, hear me out for just a moment, right? The reality is that there are desires that we experience that are difficult to describe with words. And actually, those desires point to something greater, worship of God. The reality is that marriage is not eternal. The scriptures are pretty clear. Jesus is pretty clear that in the new heaven and the new earth, they're not going to marry or be given in marriage. The Bible's pretty clear that sexuality, ha- or, uh, uh, yeah, sexual activity is within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. That's pretty clear throughout all of scripture. So if there's no marriage in the new heavens and new earth, means there's no sex in the new heavens and new earth. Means something that is pretty consistent in human experience throughout all of time, cannot be the end goal of itself. It must be a pointer to something else. And I believe it's a pointer to worship. It's a pointer to worship. It's a pointer to the desire that the Lord has for us, not sexually, but very really and intimately and strongly something that you can't describe very well with words, right? And the desire that we are to have for the Lord and the desire that we will experience with the Lord 
the intimacy that we will experience with the Lord for all eternity. So the link between spiritual adultery and idolatry is very strong because the best way to describe worship is to describe an experience of strong desire for intimacy that we have. That's why those two things are linked together throughout the scriptures. That God is saying to us, you have these desires and they actually point to something else, that you were made for some other relationship that is to be primary in all of your life. That you were made for something more. You were made for worship. So, what now are we to do with understanding this Jezebel? And what, what, are, we, what are we to do with all this stuff, right? Now, I think there is potential. We don't know exactly what's going on in Thyatira. Certainly, there could be potential that, the false, that, that there is one false teacher in this church, and she's a woman. That could be true. I actually don't think that that's likely the case because this is clearly metaphorical and clearly referencing a specific situation in the Old Testament. So it could actually be a group of false teachers, right? It could be uh, one false teacher. It could be a group of false teachers. But whatever it is, it's consistent with what the church was struggling with in Pergamum, which was idolatry. Now, this is clearly a reference to this woman Jezebel in the Old Testament. If you know anything about Jezebel in the Old Testament, she's not a good character. It's just like not, yeah, it's not like the character that you're like, you know, oh man, when you're thinking of baby names, Jezebel. Yeah, let's, let's, let's come up with that one. Sorry if anyone is named Jezebel. <laughs> that would be really awkward. Uh, <laughs> but it's not really that, that like biblical name that you're like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the character right there. Let's be like Jezebel. Like she's not a good character in the Old Testament for a number of reasons. But she shows up in 1 Kings 16 And then she is uh, killed in 2 Kings 10. So we believe this is some sort of metaphorical reference to false teachers personified by a reference to Jezebel. And and we think this is true because particularly uh, this kind of theme is going to show up again later in Revelation. Uh, Later in Revelation, it's going to talk about the great prostitute uh, highlighting spiritual adultery again. The whole point of that is spiritual adultery, not physical things, but spiritual things, and it's going to highlight the same thing, and it references Jezebel again. So we believe this is definitely a metaphorical piece. So there's a lot to this Jezebel story, but here, let me just give you a couple of spots. 1 Kings 16, 30, and 32, this is where she is uh, introduced as a character. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So Ahab is king in Israel. Ahab is also, when you're thinking of baby names, don't go with Ahab either. Ahab is also a bad dude. Like, Ahab is the king that all other kings are measured by in their evilness. Where it's like, oh, this dude was evil. Not as evil as Ahab. Right? Ahab is like the chief evil king in Israel. Bad news. All right? So, Ahab is not good. Uh, He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, his father... He married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethabal, Ethbal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. You see, this is where we get the connection. You see, Jezebel is Ahab's wife, 
and she influences him to worship another God. Now do you see the connection, right? The connection is this false teacher is getting you to worship another God, which is like adultery. Church, you are already betrothed to Jesus. What are you doing worshiping other gods? What are you doing committing yourself to idolatry? Jesus is your bridegroom. This compromise, Jezebel causes Ahab to compromise Israel with false gods and Baal worship. Later in Kings, it says this. uh, This is sort of an aside about Ahab. No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets come at Israel for their lack of love for neighbor, their lack of pursuit of justice, their lack of pursuit of uh, caring for the poor, the orphan and the widow, all of these things. And that is always the things that Israel does is always linked to worship because the chief sin of Israel is worship. It's false worship. That's why the Ten Commandments start with God. Worship God alone. If the God of the Old Testament has any command, it's worship me. That's the command. Everything else is going to flow from that one thing, which is why any of the complaints against what Israel is doing in their lives is always linked back to, well, that shows that you're not worshiping God because you fundamentally have run away from who he is. And so it is no surprise that the chief thing, right, his worst outrage, Ahab did some evil things. His worst outrage was committing Baal worship. So the reason that God links spiritual adultery with real physical adultery is, can you think of another thing that could be more damaging to any relationship than infidelity? That's what God is saying. This is the chief sin. This is the thing, worshiping other gods. This is the thing that brings judgment upon Ahab and his whole family is killed and Jezebel eventually as well. The worship of idols. God takes it incredibly seriously. It's not a game. He's not messing around with this thing. It is very serious. And so that's why he links these two things. Now the worship of idols in the Old Testament was very overt. Baal was a god that you would have an idol and a statue, and then there was this other thing called an Asherah pole. So you would mount these poles on mountains, and you would go up and you would worship at the pole, right? Like, all of these types of things were very physical and overt. You knew if you were committing idol worship. And in the first century, it was pretty overt too, right? It was emperor worship. You have to sacrifice to the emperor as God. You have to commit yourself to this, and there is very clearly, right, food sacrifice to idols. There's very clear idol worship. The trickiness for us is that idol worship today, for us in our context, is far more subtle. As Hunter pointed out a few weeks ago for us in his sermon on the church in Pergamum, money, 
fame, relationships, sex, power, entertainment, sports, any of these things can take the functional role of God in our life by being the place we find our ultimate satisfaction and worship, our ultimate love, which is why it's called spiritual adultery. Now, you can say, man, that's silly. Our ultimate love? Of course my ultimate love is Jesus. But let's take a look at our lives. What defines your ultimate love? If I said to you, my ultimate love is my wife, and yet did a whole bunch of things that show my ultimate love isn't my wife, but all sorts of other women, you would be like, no, 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 it doesn't matter what you say. Look at what you're doing with your life. That's why he linked it to spiritual adultery. We could say our ultimate love is Jesus, of course. But wait a second. What do you find joy and satisfaction in? What do you spend all your time trying to get? What are you doing with your life? Where are you running after things? What do you fear losing most? What are those things that cause you to stay up late at night because you're afraid of losing them? What are those things that get you out of bed in the morning? What are those things that you're banking all of your joy and satisfaction on? If I could just get this one thing, I'll be happy. That is your mistress. That's your idol. That's the thing that you're giving your heart to. That's not King Jesus. And spiritual adultery is always just like adultery. It promises something better. It uh, tempts us with something better. Oh, but there's this better thing out there. Just, I mean, look, your life, it's not that joyful. There's something better out there. Let's go get it. It points out what's lacking in your current situation. You know, faithfulness to Jesus isn't helping you out. Faithfulness to Jesus is causing you to lose out on things, right? That was part of the temptation for these folks is if you were part of the church, you might get left out of the economic well-being and growth in the, in the city. You might get left out on job opportunities. You might get pushed out. That was the very thing. And so spiritual idols are hinting and whispering at us. And this false teacher is hinting and whispering at them. Wait, your faithfulness to Jesus hasn't helped you. Why are you remaining faithful? It makes excuses to allow us to be unfaithful to just get what we want. Well, like, the church has really hurt me, so I get to do what I want. Like, there's this other thing. Now, the church might really hurt us. That might be very, very real. But the question is, are we going to remain faithful to Jesus? Like, what are we going to do with Jesus? We can't allow things, uh, our experiences in the church or hurt that we have experienced to allow us to run away from Jesus and then blame this other thing, right? It's the exact same thing of uh, a marriage falling apart and being like, yeah, I know I cheated, but it was their fault because they were mean to me, right? Like, that's the same thing. But here's the thing about Adultery and spiritual adultery. It always overpromises and underdelivers. It's never as good as it says it is. Which is why you move on from one thing and then you run after something else. 
right? You get the job that you've been dreaming about. A couple weeks in, you realize, wait a second. This doesn't answer all of my problems. This isn't the thing. You get the relationship that you always wanted, and then you realize that person loves me like a ton, and they still hurt me. It's not the thing. Get the money, get the car, get the house, get the thing. Wait a second, I still feel empty. Why is this not the thing? It promised it would be the thing. It always overpromises and underdelivers. Lasting joy and happiness comes from consistent and ordinary faithfulness, not spontaneous and ecstatic infidelity. Infidelity is always promised as this spontaneous and ecstatic experience, whereas happiness comes by ordinary faithfulness. Just like we saw in that that report, right? That report, that study, showed that exact thing. Ordinary faithfulness caused long-lasting happiness. That's true in relationships, but this is the point that Jesus is trying to make through John. Your ordinary faithfulness to me, church, will cause lasting happiness. Your ordinary faithfulness to me will cause lasting happiness in our relationship. Certainly true for relationships, but the relationship with God is the thing that's being discussed in the midst of this. Now, what sort of form would this false teaching have taken if it were to to unpack these things, right? We've talked about Jezebel a little bit. We've talked about the reality of what they were talking about that was leading to spiritual adultery. What sort of thing could they have been offering to make this look like this? Well, Jesus points out to them that they call these things deeper truths, right? He says, uh, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. Deeper truths plus sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. Those are the things that define this false teaching. So it could be that this false teaching was some sort of spirituality with less emphasis on the physical realm. Sexual immorality and idolatry actually don't matter because you can have this deeper truth experience in which you have this spiritual connection. This was actually a common uh, uh, teaching that developed over the first couple centuries of the church called Gnosticism. And this could be some sort of pre-Gnosticism that's going on. It's not fully, uh, you know, uh, articulated yet in history, but some of those ideas are working itself out. But this is something that the church had to wrestle with because it promised some sort of deeper truths. It said that the physical world didn't really matter, which led it in two directions. One, you would beat your body continually so that you would submit it as sort of like a stoicism, like, no, I will put my body into submission so that I can connect with God an ultra-conservative approach, avoiding everything. The other side of it was the physical doesn't matter, so you can do whatever you want, sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols, anything. It doesn't matter as long as you know these deeper truths, this spiritual reality. This was certainly, this, this kind of idea has consistently flowed throughout history, right? As Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. This kind of shows up in all these places all the time throughout the ancient Near East for Israel, certainly in late first century Rome for the church. And here's the irony of this thing. 
is kind of hyper-spirituality, is it came in the ancient Near East and in the first century with physical idols as opposed to the invisible God of the Scriptures. Right, Israel, one of Israel's main problems, right, we saw it when we were in Exodus with the golden calf and all these other pieces, is God's invisible. And they walk around and they see all these other nations with gods and they have visible gods. Look, they have these things. We worship an invisible God. That makes us feel pretty foolish when we walk around and everyone else has a God that they can, you know, walk around with. They can go visit them in this place and see them. So the physical idol versus the invisible God. The irony is that the physical idol led to physical sins being irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you do. Even though we have this physical idol, the physical world doesn't really matter, just the spiritual. You know why? Because the physical idol was dead. You could see that it was dead. It didn't do anything, right? This is the, the, the foolishness of idolatry that the prophets point out. It's like, hey, you cut up a piece of wood, half of it you cook your dinner on, the other half you make a god out of, right? It's like, well, that's silly. That doesn't make sense. We inherently know, like, that doesn't work. So it was like, no, there's this deeper spiritual reality inside of it. The irony is, with the invisible God, calls for an embodied holiness. The physical world really matters. There's an embodied nature to your holiness. I care about what you do with your body because I made it, because I care about you. This is most fully seen when Jesus comes in human form. When the God of the universe and the second person of the Trinity comes into human existence, takes on human flesh, this is the most groundbreaking truth in the world. Jesus, and we'll see throughout the book of Revelation, is forever embodied. God, the Son, existed for all eternity with God the Father and God the Spirit in happiness, in glory, and then united himself to human flesh and frailty and will keep his human form forever. Now, he's glorified, but he's keeping a human body. We're going to see a real, physical Jesus in the flesh. That's how much he cares about your body. He says, I know you can't do this on your own. I know that you guys messed this up, and I love you dearly. I'm coming, and I'm taking on human flesh to do this in your place, to work on your behalf. The image of God, being stamped with the image of God, foundational to Scripture's teaching, which is why we're going to spend some time looking at it, and the incarnation of Jesus, those are utterly unique to Christianity. Utterly unique in the world to Christianity, to Jesus. And so, Jesus is saying, you gotta hold on to this and reject this false teaching because this false teaching leads to compromise. Now, the temptation for compromise for the church in Thyatira was very real and related to threats against the church. They would face real hardship. So I guess the question for us is, what false teaching exists around us that could lead us to compromise? This is written to the universal church, and we're a part of the universal church. This is written to us. So what false teaching exists 
that might lead us to compromise. Now, I think there's a lot of things, but I think there are two kind of categorical ways that I see this happening in the church today, okay? So there's a lot of things that could fall under this, but two kind of big picture things I want to throw out here. And they kind of go in opposite directions. One is to embrace the overarching cultural secular view of humanity and the church. To just embrace what the culture is teaching about what it means to be human and what that means about Jesus in the church. And it's a strong temptation for the church because that's the prevailing cultural narrative. That's it. That's the way. Like, you got to line up on these things. That's it. And if you don't, you are, like, evil. Right? It's not just that you disagree, but you're like Ahab. Right? In, in the cultural world in which we exist, right, having certain biblical, biblically faithful positions is going to leave you as, you're worse than Ahab. We're going we're gonna to show you how bad you are. Look, you're worse than Ahab in our minds. And could face real hardship. That's like a real thing. That's one way. Now, I think, that, now that actually helps or makes us compromise on our ethics of Jesus, and I would argue actually makes us compromise on our love of neighbor. And that's a, that's a whole other conversation that we can go into that will, you know, if you, if you want to talk about that later, we can talk later. College students, stick around for lunch and we can talk about it. Come on, look at that plug. That's right there. That was easy. All right, but I think the opposite side of this that is a very real compromise temptation is to embrace a pseudo-Christian, American-loving empire view that actually says, no, 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 that false narrative is false, and we will fight it. Not faithfully endure, we will crush it, and we will actually rule over it. We will actually take power in charge. Now, there's a ton of false teaching that falls under those two categories, but those are some of the categorical things. And that one is very subtle and actually maybe fits more to the book of Revelation, because remember, Revelation is not... Babylon, repent. Look at how terrible this is. No, Revelation is, Babylon's done. Like, Babylon's not coming back. It's over. Babylon's not gonna make it, right? So, looking at that idea of, like, this cultural narrative that exists, right? These views against Jesus and the church, all this. That's not gonna win. That's not the, that's not the question of the church. The question of the church is, are you gonna join with the empire? Like, are you gonna compromise? So the question for us is, are we going to compromise our ethics of Jesus to make sure we crush Babylon? Because that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, actually, you're going to live in Babylon and you're going to endure suffering. Not going to crush them. And there definitely is a strain within American Christianity today that is pushing us to say, no, 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 we can retain power. It doesn't matter if we have to compromise our ethics to do it. We can retain power. We can compromise our ethics. That's okay. Because look, look at what they're doing. They're fighting nasty. Let's fight nasty. But Jesus doesn't let us do that. That's the problem. The problem is Jesus says, no, that's not okay. You don't get to compromise on your ethics in order to gain power to protect the church. The church doesn't need protected. Jesus has got you. You've got to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. 
you're not going to have this work out. One of these views seeks to make the gospel more palatable to the world. If we would just ignore certain teachings of the scriptures, the gospel will be more palatable, will be accepted, will be good. The other seeks to make the gospel more powerful. If we could just add some political power or clout, or if we could just add these other pieces to this, we will be protected and safe, right? If we just vote the right people in office, if we just get the right Supreme Court justices, if we just do these right things, things will go well for us. Not for the thriving of humanity, that's not really the argument. It's, it will go well for us, and we will be protected and safe. The gospel needs to be more powerful than what it is. Both of those positions compromise Jesus. Both of those ignore Jesus. Both of those have the threat for spiritual adultery, losing our faithfulness to God. And we need to be on the watch for both of those things. Now, how are we to be on the watch for both of these things? Well, certainly we can point out some of the pitfalls and all those things. We want to do that for sure. But I want to point us in another direction. I want to point us to Jesus. Because Jesus says, judgment is coming. Right? He says, I see you. And my eyes are like flames. Did you catch what he said to them? I search. Uh, Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. I don't know about you, but Jesus, with eyes of fire, searching out my thoughts and intentions around spiritual adultery makes me say, "Uh uh-oh, right? It's not just the things that I did, it's the things that I thought, the things that I wanted to think he sees. But do you notice? There are two incredible things that happen here. First, there is the grace to repent. Verse 21 She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent. What? You know, throughout the Old Testament, this Jezebel character, there's not a lot of uh, prophets going to say, like, "Let's, let's get Jezebel to repent. It's like, run away and hide, or when Jehu gets in power, we're gonna kill Jezebel. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. He takes, metaphorically, one of the worst characters in the Old Testament and says, I'm going to give her time to repent. That should give us great encouragement. That he also gives us time to repent. He gives us time to witness what we're doing and to repent. And then he gives them this promise. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end. And remember, we talked about this word victorious, this overcome, right? Is not this victory in physical, uh, like war victory, but at overcoming by clinging to Jesus actually in death. Remember, it says in Revelation in another part that they have conquered Satan by the word of their testimony because they love not their lives even unto death. This victory is not a crushing of my enemies. It's a remaining faithful while being crushed by my enemies. To 
to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. The morning star seems like it's a reference to this glory showing up, right? And the one who shows up in glory is Jesus. He's giving them himself. I'm gonna give them the authority that I have. I'm actually gonna give them me. You get me. So the answer to our spiritual adultery is not running away from Jesus in fear because he comes with eyes like fire, but running to Jesus with that fear because he is the only place that can answer. Lasting joy and happiness comes from consistent and ordinary faithfulness, not spontaneous and ecstatic infidelity. Consistent and ordinary faithfulness, the everyday stuff of worshiping Jesus. Worshiping Jesus, loving my neighbor, prayer, fellowship with believers, reading my Bible, taking communion, one of the reasons why we committed to this, and actually it's, it's perfect, this is uh, written based upon the liturgical calendar, which we're in ordinary time right now, which is actually most of the year. Most of the year is not Easter and Advent. Most of the year is not Christmas and Easter. Those are special occasions in the life of the church. Most of the year is ordinary time. And maybe... If you've been committing to this, you've been frustrated at times by how ordinary it is. Nothing spectacular here, guys. It's prayers. It's reading the scriptures. But if you commit to that over the long haul, your life will be massively transformed. If you commit to following Jesus in all the everyday details of life, the decisions you make at work, the decisions you make at school, worshiping him, praying to him, trusting him, it will transform your life. But what about the fact that it seems likely, given all the things I've talked about today, that we've all compromised on our love of Jesus at some point, probably today. Like, what do we do with that? What about him seeing our secret deeds? How are we to, how do we function in this? The psalmist says in Psalm 130, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, oh Lord, could ever survive? If you kept a record of our sins, if you could see and you can see, and if you know all of them, who could possibly survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. The reality is, the way in which we actually combat the temptation of spiritual adultery is to love our bridegroom, Jesus. And the way we do that is actually by being loved by him. Ephesians 5, this section is about marriage, but it's really not about marriage. Paul ends with being like, ah, marriage is fine, whatever. But I wanna talk about Jesus, right? That's how we should read Ephesians 5, right? Next time you're at a wedding and someone reads Ephesians 5, just stand up and be like, but that's about Jesus, wait. Like, that's what Paul's excited about. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. 
he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Jesus, our bridegroom, gave up his life to make us pure. He knows that we are impure. He knows that we compromise. He knows that we want to run the other way. He knows the secret thoughts and intentions of our heart. And yet he came and died in our place to pay the punishment for all of those sins so that he could present us to himself as a beautiful and radiant bride. The end of Revelation, the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven presented as a bride for her bridegroom. The church is presented without spot or blemish or wrinkle, without fault. This is why Jesus says to those who have remained faithful, I add nothing to you. Hold fast to what you already have. The key to faithfulness and therefore lasting joy and happiness is not our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Jesus, our bridegroom who is always faithful when we've been unfaithful. This is the goodness of the gospel. And so the way in which we grow in this ordinary faithfulness is by being enthralled by the lavish love of Jesus for you and content with that ordinary faithfulness to him. Because here's the thing. The false promise of spiritual adultery is just that. It's a false promise. Go out and look for it. It's what Solomon declared in Ecclesiastes. I had everything. Man, it's all worthless. You already have everything if you have Jesus. You have the bright morning star. You have everything you need. He sees every thought and intention in your heart and loves you. Where else are you going to? Let's commit ourselves to being enthralled by the love of Jesus and ordinary, boring faithfulness, which will transform this city and the world. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now because we need you. We are those who are prone to idols. We are prone to running after all sorts of things. We are prone to running away from you, King Jesus, and yet you love us. So let us come now knowing that you no longer keep a record of our sins because you have removed them from us as far as the east is from the west because you love us dearly and you've done that in Jesus. So Holy Spirit, would you come and make that sure in our hearts that we would commit ourselves to ordinary faithfulness and everlasting happiness. We pray this in Christ's name.